You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. I want to say thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting Faith and Family here on Worldwide KFUO. You can find out more about them on our website, kfuo.org, in the sponsor section. As uh, as many of you know, not too long ago, I attended the uh, Matthew Bulfin Education Conference in Houston, Texas. It was a, a joint education conference for the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, as well as the American College of Pediatricians, and there were others in attendance, and uh, it was uh, received a gracious invitation from uh, the from the, the members of uh, APLOG and uh, American College of Pediatricians to attend and uh, I just I, I learned uh, just, just so much information but so much more than information uh, was there the, there were very passionate uh, medical professionals pediatricians OBGYNs and and others who work in medicine who are who understand and and value this gift of life. And there were several presenters there. One of the, the presenters uh, is our guest today, Dr. Alma Golden, uh, pediatrician from Temple, Texas, and whose career included uh, private practice, healthcare administration, national and international public health policy, and she was a presenter at the conference speaking on family structure and child well-being. Dads make a difference. Dr. Golden, welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you very much, Andy. It's an honor to be uh, to join your your program today. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for uh, spending some time talking with us. I should I should also add I, to that list of vocations. I, I failed to mention uh, Dr. Golden's a mother and grandmother as well. So uh, all very highly esteemed vocations. <laughs> Absolutely, and among and certainly my favorite vocations. Thank you. <laughs> and, and I understand uh, not too long ago spending some some quality time over spring break with with grandkids. How did that go? It was fabulous. I had a three year old and a six year old here full time, and I got to practice twenty four hour uh, grandparenting for a few days, which actually <laughs> was great fun. Well, very good. And as I understand it uh, from some research, the uh, that um, grandparenting, at least uh, spending quality time in moderation, uh, is great for grandparents' health as well. For the especially for for cognitive health and well being. Have you have you seen that research? I, I've seen a little bit of it, but I think even more than that, I watched it. I saw my mother <laughs> who was then uh, had relapsed from cancer and. We, she really made a significant personal change that we got to watch when she had her grandchildren close by. And I think her grandchildren added three or four years to her life just because she was so determined to be there and love them. Mm, it, indeed. And we, we say that, you know, in our family, too, we always remind uh, my parents or, or my wife's parents when they get to spend quality time with our son, that uh, especially in those days when he's really feisty, that we're just doing it for their health to, <laughs> to make sure that they're staying healthy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, all joking aside, they, our family loves spending time together across the generations, and we're grateful for that. And and that brings me to uh, what you presented on at the the uh, Matthew Bulfin Education Education Conference, and that was the the importance of family structure uh, for the health of children, and uh, particularly um, the the role of dads and how that is is key in the health and well being of children. I'd like to get to that topic here in just a moment, but tell us a little bit about your work as a pediatrician. You've you, you've served in a variety of ways in uh, in this uh, medical field. I really have had an opportunity to do lots of different things. In fact, I've teased at times that if you look at my resume, it looks like I can't keep a job. <laughs> <laughs> but I had, I did I started off primarily in pri- uh, private practice, uh, particularly when my children were young, so that I had a little a good control or reasonable control over the number of days I worked a week. Uh, but then as they got older, I uh, went into um, academic medicine, and I taught at the University of Texas Medical Branch and also ran one of the divisions um, that provided care to indigent families. And that was really one of the times I started watching the impact of uh, single-parent families and some of the extra challenges some of these children face from an um, emotional, social, and also a health um, situation. Uh, from that, I was offered a position um, in George W. Bush's administration. I served as a presidential appointee and ran one of the offices in Health and Human Services for four years during his administration. 
That um, particular division is called the Office of Population Affairs and works with issues related to uh, women's health, adolescent health, and so forth. And it was really quite a challenging environment to look at the impact of teen pregnancy, um, un- unmarried pregnancy, and some of the some of the um, usual solutions that policies often offer that actually may not really make the situation much better. So I had that, and then I've been back to teach and uh, see patients since that time. And right now I'm mostly teaching and writing, and I also do policy uh, consulting on family and health issues. And I teach medical students, for instance, on public health and policy. But I've had a lot of wonderful and interesting things to do, and it's really provided a real broad range of things to look at and a broad range of research to be uh, aware of and put into use. How did your your experience in private practice influence your work later in, in research and policy and, and the academic side of things? I think one of the most profound things that happened to me uh, while I was in private practice is that I really believed that I needed to be available for all of the patients in the community. And I recognized that there were some real obstacles in terms of taking care of some of our lowest income um, patients. Um, The group that I worked with had a limited number that I could see directly um, inside the practice just because of the financial drain that it made on them. And consequently, I started working with the county health department to try to offer clinics uh, in the in cooperation with the county health nurse, um, and that actually sort of sparked a real um, desire for me to look at what are some mechanisms that we can do to improve healthcare provisions uh, for people who have lower incomes or fewer resources, and um, that so. That model of looking at what the challenges are in private practice and some of the opportunities and restrictions we have in terms of how we take care of people really drove a lot of the rest of my uh, career in terms of looking at what are triggers that cause people to have such health issues and health access deficits, and also what do we as... um, as physicians, as church members, as community members who care, how is it that we best express our support to all of the community? And one of the things that I think has been fascinating on this is that we've actually done some things in our society that have made things considerably worse. And um, that, that awareness that we sometimes in our efforts to maybe try to fix things, like give more money or more resources or more welfare to people, that sometimes it may actually undermine some of their own capacity to make choices and care for themselves. So there's been a lot of this has been interwoven mm-hmm. and, uh, and also sort of sequential in terms of recognitions of how we, how we make things better and which things are the positive consequences we wanted and what are the unintended consequences that we trigger when we make a decision on how to help? When, when working in uh, academic, uh, in, in academia and in, in medicine in that field, were there, uh, were there things you saw in you know, the academic side of medicine, especially the, um, perhaps the, the, the formation of, uh, of you know, future medical professionals? Were there questions that came up for you during that time uh, about that, that process and the formation of you know, future pediatricians? Um, yes, and I'll tell you one specific area that really made me think and watch what we are doing in medicine. And that's around the area of providing what's referred to as confidential care for adolescents. You may remember, and uh, you're too young to remember, Andy, but when <laughs> I was in college um, back in the late 60s and early 70s, there was really a very strong sense that the teenagers needed to be able to access confidential care without the bother of their parents. 
And um, so consequently, there were several patterns of training health professionals based on that. And, um, and so we developed a whole framework in medicine, which really what blossomed most in academia, called a confidential confidentiality for adolescents. And in that, it allows teenagers to um, present to a doctor or to a healthcare environment so that they can be treated for an STD or they can get um, uh, contraceptives and in some environments even uh, access abortions without the knowledge or involvement or consent of a family member or parent. When I would watch this happen in academia, I recognized that, for one thing, many of these teenagers really couldn't comprehend yet, and we now know that their brains aren't really developed enough to understand some of these things, but I could, you could actually watch these kids. They were having difficulty understanding what it was they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to make decisions, and they didn't have the people that were the most trusted and most caring for them close by their parents to help them um, address some of the decision-making they were doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I recognize, just as you suggested, that some of our patterns in academia actually made things worse again. Were these these changes in patterns or these changes in practices that were taught in academia, were they they founded in... In, in science and research, was there research that 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 showed that this was necessary for the health of of adolescents? Actually, that's a really good question. If you go back to the early seventies, there were a whole series of paradigms that were promoted at that point in time that were theoretical. They were uh, the baby boomers that were going through the flower power stage. You know, the, the folks who were my age and a little older were, had become pretty rebellious. And they took several ideas that they believed and they operationalized them. And I'll just give you some examples of some of the paradigms that were used back then. Uh, one of them was marriage is old-fashioned and confining. You know, we don't need marriage. You just want to be loved, you know. Uh, another one was that open relationships are healthier and more conducive to personal development. So it's like we should be able to just do our own thing and not be committed, that sort of thing. And the other one that really became a source of great distress today is we had this opinion that fathers are nice, but they're not at all necessary. And so we saw them as being, um, you know, sort of tangential at best. And they also had, we also had paradigm that was like, it's better to live with a single mother than with unhappy married parents. And one of them that has caused many of us uh, pediatricians great distress is the paradigm that the kids will be okay. They are flexible. And if you took each of those paradigms that I just um, noted to you and you compared them to actual research today, you'd see that each one of those paradigms has been significantly disproven. And yet it w- they were operationalized, uh, and, and of course, along with the one I mentioned earlier, that teens needed to be able to make their decisions independently. All of those paradigms were operationalized and put into our policies and our philosophies and our attitudes about uh, how our society should operate. Now that we are 40 years down the road and we look at the research that really examines those issues, we find out we really made some flawed assumptions 40 years ago. Is there research on these issues? Uh, There actually is on each one of them. Uh, probably uh, one of the most important, though, that we have now, just uh, hundreds of research articles on in different um, different areas of research, like sociology or medicine or psychology and so forth. One of the most important is that fathers are nice but not necessary. We now know that fathers are really critical 
to really healthy personal, psychosocial, and even physical well-being. In your presentation at the the uh, conference, uh, the Matthew Bolfin Education Conference, you had mentioned uh, a CDC report back in December of 2010. Tell us uh, about the the history of that report. What tell us what, what was what was presented in that report? We'll get to the, the actual presentation of that report, but what was in this report? Basically, the CDC has a division called the National Health Interview Survey, and they refer to it as NHIS, and they've been doing it for many, many years. And they have a way to collect information from not just hundreds or thousands, but even hundreds of thousands of individuals. And if they use that information, they can tell kind of the trends of what's happening in the country and sometimes they just look at it for things like how many people had a mammogram or what kind of cancer is common but in um, during the George W. Bush administration they actually did a, a survey that looked specifically at, chi- at child outcomes or well-being uh, in uh, married or in the different family structures married cohabitating, single parent, unmarried, adoptive family, a blended family, an extended family, or even other types like foster care. So in this particular um, survey, they collected information um, between 2001 and 2007, and they had um, over 240,000 families that were uh, interviewed, and it represented over 650,000 people total. So it's a really, really significant um, body of information. They asked specifically not only what kind of families these children were living in, but then they went through some common concerning health measures or health outcomes. And um, produced really a very significant um, document that has many, many policy implications. The only problem with the policy implications is you have to get the information out to the public if you want them to be able to act on it from a policy or a practical perspective. And for reasons that I don't understand, the, the release of this document occurred um, in complete silence. They actually held the document, apparently, to be released on a weekend um, during the Christmas holidays without a press conference. So it had been released for several weeks before anybody even realized that that information was available. If you want, If you want public attention... If you want uh, the public to to read this report that you're releasing, I would gather that the time to release it w- would probably not be during a major holiday, in the middle of a major holiday, on a weekend, <laughs> when people are preoccupied with other things. Just a guess. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is of such this is of such magnitude. It would have been absolutely fabulous if there had actually been a press conference and a major press release, and maybe a series of uh, experts talking about the importance of child health and how families can be more stable and supporting supportive of their children by stabilizing and strengthening families. It would have been a beautiful opportunity to do that. Would you say that the findings in this report are somewhat controversial today? I think they are, because remember, we were talking about the paradigms that were, that, uh, were perpetrated about 40 years ago about that marriage really wasn't any different from cohabitation and that open marriages are better and you're better off with a single mom. All of those paradigms are basically refuted 
by the this large body of survey data that was released. So in many ways, um, this one 70-page document sort of invalidates a lot of, by itself almost, invalidates a lot of the assumptions and paradigms that we based a lot of our policies on. Um, and I think that it's, it's a fascinating document. It's one that anybody can pull up from their own computer, that you need to have the right address for it or something, at least the correct um, mm-hmm. uh, name. And a, a there's actually a little number that's used with it. It's the uh, HIS, um, NHIS. A series 10 number 246, series 10 number 246, family structure and children's health in the United States. And it's one that is interesting to look at, particularly the first 30 pages or so are just fascinating in terms of what it tells you about family structure and child health uh, in the United States right now. And we'll provide a link. You said it was uh, number 246, correct? 246, that's correct. We'll provide mm-hmm. a link uh, with the archive of today's program so that our listeners can uh, go right to that report to review it themselves as well. The The fact that this, this report indicates a, a number of uh, well, brings about a, a number of findings that that really point out that all these paradigms that that we brought about, not rooted in in research, uh, several generations ago, you know, or is you know a couple of decades ago, uh, mm-hmm. they weren't rooted in in research. They they're rooted in something else. <laughs> they're they're rooted in in our own well, in our own selfish desires. It seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the fact that we now have research that shows what the the outcomes of these these um, these attitudes these uh, philosophies these approaches these uh, these paradigms have have brought about what does that leave for us from here uh, this the CDC report that came out in December of 2010 in the the quiet of uh, you know <laughs> of uh, Christmas break um, where does this leave us Dr Golden now that we we have this information. Is anything being done with this information? I can't tell that there's been much uh, use of this information to this point. However, I do think that if those of us that really want to see healthy children um, need to become familiar with this data, and it needs to turn into a, a foundation for some really strong policies. If we know, for instance, uh, that these children actually thrive more when they are living with their married mother and dad, then there ought to be some policies that specifically strengthen the capacity of families so that we not only help prepare parents for uh, strong, stable marriages, but that we kind of stand with them and give them tools during marriage so that they can have a good relationship and have a wonderful and sheltering place for their children to grow up. Um, So uh, from a policy perspective, I think it has incredible um, potential. It gives us a roadmap that shows us if we, for instance, let me just give you an idea of just how diverse the, the different benefits are of having both parents committed to the children in the home, two biological parents. If the children who are raised in a single parent family have twice as likely, are twice as likely to have to go to the emergency room. Now that doesn't necessarily mean they're twice as sick, but if you stop and think about it, a child that's raised Uh, in a home with only one parent, if that parent becomes exhausted, if they become discouraged, they don't have another parent to walk in and say, you know what, I'm going to take care of Jason. It's midnight. You go back to bed. Let's, let's Let's just watch him real close and we'll both share care. And a single parent doesn't have that luxury. And for that matter, if, if it's a single parent that has a job and they're thinking, I better take them to the emergency room now because I've got a 
figure out if I can go to work tomorrow. All of those things factor in. You can see how shared, committed care really makes a big difference. So that's the one type of health outcome that you see that's different in a child that's raised with married biological parents. Another type of um, outcome that you see a big difference in is the psychosocial or even the learning. And that's a really, that's one of the most impressive areas in this particular uh, find, the particular database. We're talking with Dr. Alma Golden, a pediatrician from Temple, Texas, who served in uh, private practice, healthcare administration, national and international public policy. She's a mother and grandmother. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back from that break, we'll continue our conversation on the importance of family structure for the health and well-being of children. You're listening to Faith and Family. Concordia University, Mequon, Wisconsin, overlooks the beautiful shoreline of Lake Michigan. This serene main campus of CUW is just 15 miles north of Milwaukee with all its vibrant cultural attractions. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, students living by the motto of inspiration and action can choose from 69 undergraduate majors, 14 master degree programs, and doctorates in pharmacy, physical therapy, and nursing practice. For more information or to take a virtual tour, visit cuw.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. The most dangerous place for a black baby to be in New York City isn't in a crack house or a violence-torn part of the city. The most dangerous place for a black baby in New York City is in the womb. The Big Apple aborts more black babies than those born alive. About half of all Latino babies conceived in New York are aborted. This matches our research of Planned Parenthood targeting minority neighborhoods for abortion. Nearly 80% of their surgical abortion mills are within walking distance of blacks and Latinos. This is consistent with the philosophy of Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Sanger, who called minorities human weeds. If you'd like to see the dramatic visual research, visit lifeissues.org and click on the microphone icon. For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org. And stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Hi, this is Todd Wilkin, inviting you to join us for Issues Etc. weekday afternoons from 3 to 5. Issues Etc. is a live call-in show with a twofold purpose. First, we defend and teach the truths rediscovered during the Reformation, grace, faith, scripture, and Christ alone. Second, we challenge today's postmodern culture with its unbiblical ideology. Issues Etc. live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO Radio. Ad Crusum offers theologically sound, scripturally rich, and high-quality items for nearly every occasion. They have exquisite greeting cards, handcrafted jewelry, fine art, crucifixes, church certificates, banners, and much more. AdCrusum.com has amazing products at great prices. That's AdCrusum.com. Greeting cards and gifts designed and made in the USA. Confessing the faith through art and word. AdCrusum.com. The majority of our support comes from individual listeners just like you. We appreciate you so much. However, a portion of our support is from underwriting partners. What is underwriting? Well, underwriting is when an organization, a church, or business makes a financial gift to KFUO in support of our broadcast ministry. As part of our underwriting partnership, KFUO gives the underwriters on-air announcements to spread the word and inform you, the listener, about their business or mission. Do you believe that KFUO and the worldwide proclamation of the gospel is worthy of your support? Do you have a business, organization, or ministry that could benefit from being a KFUO underwriter? If so, contact me, Gary Duncan, at 314-996-1511 or email gifts at kfuo.org and let us know you would love to be a KFUO underwriter. We'll help you get your message out as you help us reach the world with the good news message of Christ. We are listener-supported KFUO, the messenger of good news.
You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. We're talking with Dr. Alma Golden, a pediatrician from Temple, Texas, who served in private practice, healthcare administration, national and international public health policy. She's also a mother and grandmother and a recent presenter at the Matthew Bulfin Education Conference in Houston, Texas. Before we went to break, Dr. Golden, we were talking about this CDC report that uh, was released basically in silence in December of 2010. And the what was what was presented in that report uh, is a research from what 2001 to 2007 regarding the the, the structure of a family and how that makes an impact on a child's health and and well-being and the the findings were were quite significant uh, in in that the, the the structure of family biological parents uh, being married all uh, all have significant impacts on uh, the the health and well-being the development of children what uh, what were some other findings that you found interesting that stood out for you in this in this report well i want i think one thing that our society has preferred to do is to look at sort of easily identifiable other factors like what is the education of the parents what is the income that the that the child is living in? Are they in a poverty status? What part of the country are they in? Um, Are they inner city or rural or whatever? And I think one of the most impressive sentences I found in the entire publication that the CDC put out was this one. And it's, um, I'm just going to read it to you. Children in nuclear families were generally less likely than children in the remaining family types to have a learning disability or ADHD, regardless of parents' education, income, poverty status, place of residence, or region. In other words, having a mom and dad who are married and live with that child is more protective than income, education status, where they live, or what kind of environment they're in. And we haven't recognized that before, and even now that we know it, we're not using it in terms of how to benefit children. But particularly some of the psychosocial and learning aspects were very, very um, profound. In other words, children were about one-third to one-half as likely to have a severe emotional or behavioral difficulty they were half as likely to to demonstrate attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder and they also were less likely to even not to not be well behaved they were less likely to have headaches um, there are just many many factors that have to do with just their psychosocial well-being if they live with their dad their security level apparently helped to moderate a lot of those really important findings We're not doing very well on fixing them by just uh, propping up the schools sometimes or adding more counseling in the neighborhood centers. We need to look at how we can bring dads back into a committed, stable family. So the the research shows that if, if children live in a family with their, their, in their nuclear family, married biological parents, they're less likely, regardless of all those other factors, less likely to experience ADHD. Be- just that's correct. Because that's correct, and this is according to a uh, you know a survey instrument that has you know six hundred fifty thousand people in it. You know, two hundred and forty thousand families. So it's a it's a large body, and it's um, and it's really there are some people that have express skepticism about about that, but I think that what what we have to deal with is that we don't know why they have less ADHD or less behavioral difficulties or fewer behavioral, um, uh, I guess you could say, control issues, but we do know that when you have twice as many parents in the house, both of them strongly committed to the child, I think both of them work on those ch- with those children around those fragile areas. How do we reconcile that with a culture that, that welcomes marriage vows that go something like, uh, we'll remain married as long as we're in love, or as, right. long, as, as long as I'm happy? <laughs> how, how do we reconcile 
this research with that culture? <laughs> I think that's a difficult question. <laughs> I think we've really we've really undermined what the role of family is and the value of stability and commitment. And if you step back and look at some of the um, some of the larger research pieces that have to do with adolescents or even adults, there's a, for instance, there's another gigantic and wonderful resource called the um, Longitude, National Longitudinal Study for Adolescent Health, and there are literally hundreds of research pieces that have mined the data from that research from the Ad Health Study. Um, you see that the adolescents who have grown up with secure relationships in a in a nuclear family. Uh, those kids just finish high school more. They are more likely to go to college and complete that. They're more likely to have stable relationships as they get older. And the kids who have experienced these very, um, I guess you could say fluid or flexible uh, family relationships. There's another study that ha- is called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. It was done at Kaiser Permanente out in California. They noticed that some of their adults who were struggling with obesity had a, a whole constellation of other issues that it was almost like it prevented them from being able to take control of their their diagnosis or their problems. So they started looking at what are the backgrounds of people that have difficulty managing their own personal health. And they looked at adverse childhood experiences. And one of the predictors of difficulty in adult um, health also had to do with family stability. So you're seeing it as a recurrent theme. I think the challenge we're facing right now is if we know that married biological stable families are good for children, adolescents, and adults, what do we do about it? What is this? Does this influence that marriage that's, uh, it's not the, the happiest of marriage, but it, it maybe could work? You know, what does this say to that marriage? Well, there have been a few studies, particularly around um, what I would call the marriage and relationship education uh, programs and the fatherhood initiative programs that have shown that there are some techniques that can be taught and learned in order for couples who may not have, quote, the perfect relationship, but they have what some folks refer to as a good enough relationship if they're willing to spend some time developing skills of communication and collaboration, um, they can have a good life. It may not be the happily ever after that uh, Cinderella and Prince Charming had, but it can be a good life and certainly a better one than you see for the folks that just uh, give up and walk away. Um, Not only is the good enough marriage better for the children. It's actually better for the uh, adults as well. So the the quote unquote good enough marriage could uh, one be better for the children, but also for the adults, rather than the this trend that that we have in our our American culture of uh, well it is not working for me right now, so it's disposable just like everything else. In, in our culture, I can, if I'm not happy with it, I can just get rid of it and then I'll find happiness somewhere else. That's very true. That's the way we're approaching it. Then when you follow uh, some of the outcomes for single women, their rates of depression are so much higher. And even the rates of intimate partner violence for uh, single women in relationships, whether it's the boyfriend or the cohabitating partner, the violence and depression and even the financial status are so much so much worse for our women and children and even for the men um, when there there's unstable commitment. I think that one of the things that we threw away with some of those baby boomer paradigms, I think we threw away 
the understanding of commitment and trust and what a role that actually plays in terms of our own personal stability and security and sense of belonging and ultimately well-being. You, you mentioned some fatherhood initiative organizations, and, and we, we talk with the National Fatherhood Initiative um, regularly here on Faith and Family and very grateful for the work that they do. And they've pointed out that we have a, a fatherhood crisis here in in the United States, the the numbers of of fathers or of uh, fathers who are absent um, from children's lives is is quite significant. I'd like to go back to uh, the the topic of of fathers and especially when children are in uh, raised in a family with their biological father married to their mother. Um, what we know that that reduces the the uh, the risk of um, um, ADHD. What were some other uh, things that we learned from this report about uh, children being in homes or in families with both their biological parents married to each other? Well, I think that there were several interesting things that fathers apparently add to the add to the formula uh, that are sort of interesting, that children who live with their dad and mother are more likely to have a regular place to go get their dental checkups, to go get their vaccines, to follow up on getting their medicines. There's just this sense that everything can be taken care of and everything can be followed up on if they live with both parents. And one of the other resources that um, I had looked at before really examined what's the difference on how much time children get with their parents. Because even though we know that um, fathers are often absent, um, sometimes people think, well, as long as they, the kids see their dad once every week or two, that's okay. But in one of the studies that uh, is, was done by Child Trends a number of years ago, they looked at how much time and attention the children got. And the children that lived in a two-parent uh, nuclear family got an average of two hours and 20 minutes with their mothers each day and one hour and 16 minutes with their fathers. But when they, when the children that were raised in a single parent family were looked at, the total was like half of that. It was like an average of one point one hour and 46 minutes with a mom and 25 minutes with a dad. So far, far less time. Uh, and that has implications for lots of things. Uh, in terms of how they achieve and how they learn and how stable and um, and comfortable they are in life. Um, a couple of other things that are really related to it are the financial patterns for children. And for a while, everybody thought the only, the real difference between a single parent and a and a married couple raising a, ch- a child was the financial framework. And Many different countries or societies or policies were developed that looked at how do we add more money to uh, a single parent home so they will look like a married parent home. And Sarah McClanahan is a researcher that's worked in this area for probably three to four decades. She's really been a champion on looking at poverty and children and families. She went back about, oh, three or four years ago and looked at the Scandinavian countries because over there they had really decided that as long as they could kind of make the finances equal between a married couple and a single mother, that the children should turn out okay. But Sarah McClanahan had some very interesting words on that. She said that cohabitating parents, the ones that, that where the single mom is living with someone else, those children are more disadvantaged in many ways than the ones that are living just with a single mother. And that even in the very generous Nordic welfare state, the children that live with single mothers had fewer material resources, less parental support, and poorer health than those living with two original parents. So there's just a real um, interesting set of dynamics around the finances, too, and we can't reduce the issue simply to financial uh, capacity of a single mother to care for a child. What 
does this, what does this research say? What does it not say regarding, you know, we, it obviously says that, that the, the nuclear family is, is the ideal place for a, a child when it comes to health and well-being, to uh, reduce the risk of ADHD and, and uh, a whole host of other things um, in, in terms of health and well-being. What does this, but it does, we're not saying that um, in the case of uh, a, a single mom, a single dad, um, or a divorce or the, the loss of a parent through death, um, or if a, a child lives with other family members, it's not saying that that child is doomed, right? Absolutely not. I think what this does is it helps us to create a framework so that we know that we that it's not just a matter of throwing resources at families who are struggling. Um, Andy, you remember me mentioning at the at the uh, conference that my oldest son died just mm-hmm. six months ago, and so now I have a a beautiful widowed daughter-in-law and her three children, and they will do okay. They'll do okay because. Number one, thankfully, they were fathered well before we lost my son. But number two, they have they have friends, they have extended family members, they have people in the faith community, all who have reached out to them and who aren't just going to be there for today or tomorrow. They're going to be there to love them for a long time. And that's what we as believers and as policy people and as neighbors and as family members need to do. We need to look for the opportunity to walk up beside these families who are raising children with where there's only one parent in the home or whether there's a unusual blending of like a new marriage or something. These families need a little extra encouragement and support and resources. We as as the church and as members of the body of Christ really need to look for how do we, how we recognize, help them recognize issues? How do we stand with them and support them and tell them they're not failures if things aren't easy? And how do we actually encourage on a very personal level, the folks that are beside us, but also on a national level, uh, create the dialogues that make family stability a high priority. So what I'm, I'm hearing you say, what the, the CDC report shows us is that uh, st- stability is important. It doesn't say, it doesn't necessarily say um, why married moms and dads in, in nuclear families help children stay healthy, but what's what's missing when outside of that setting quite often, uh, not all the time, but quite often is, is committed uh, th- this commitment and stability, this understanding of uh, of commitment and stability that you said, I think you, you mentioned earlier that, that we we lost when when we made those paradigm shifts, uh, you know, a couple generations back. That we can we can spend millions of dollars in in uh, developing programs and 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 resources uh, to try to make up the difference. Um, for different types of families rather than the nuclear family to, to try to make up the difference, as you pointed out with the Scandinavian countries, but it didn't necessarily always bring about the, you know, a, a truly equalization for those children, um, for the, for those families. The, the difference I think is the, the, the commitment and the, even in, as you were talking about in your family, and I've, I've seen it in my own as well, when uh, my sister lost her husband uh, about five years ago as well, and watching my nephews grow up uh, over the, you know, those years. And uh, certainly, you know, they would give everything to have their, their father and husband back, but uh, the, the, they're growing up fine. And, and, and it's because the, the family that, that has surrounded them and, and the community that has supported them, the, their congregation that's been uh, helpful and supportive and loving as well. All of those people around them that have demonstrated some level of commitment or, or another, as you mentioned in your own family too, that, that, that loving commitment seems to be uh, the, the missing factor in those other settings. I think that's exactly right and well said, Andy. The, 
a few years ago when I was sitting and looking at all this, both from a personal perspective and also from a research perspective, I realized that all these health initiatives and all these policy initiatives really fail to predict wellness. We can't just decide we're going to run a set of commercials and make people well. You know, what predicts wellness is relationships. Strong relationships help people be well, even if they've got cancer. Poor relationships or weak relationships allow people to be to have to struggle even when they're physically healthy. So relationships are really the key to wellness for children, for teenagers and adults. And I think it's one of the beauties of what we're called to um, in our faith and in our practice. So thanks be to God for those uh, for those congregations for the that uh, that support us for the the families in those congregations that reach out to us with with Christ's love and and demonstrate that through acts of mercy and as we do that in our own families in our own extended families I'm I'm grateful that uh, that you've you've witnessed that in your own family as you see your 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 daughter-in-law and grandchildren uh, being supported that's uh, that's outstanding and and uh, I think speaks volumes about the the work that you you've been doing uh, for some time now. Thank you, Andy. It's a, it's hard, but it's mm-hmm. important to be able to put into practice what you see and believe. Well, Dr. Golden, I have certainly appreciated the, the time that you've spent with us today. I'll, uh, we'll provide a link of the, the CDC report that we discussed uh, with the archive of today's program. I thank you for your your time and your your service, the the all the research and and your presentation at the Matthew Bulfin Education Conference. It was uh, certainly outstanding. I hope that uh, we can talk again in the future. Thank you very much. I'd be pleased to do that. Thanks thank very you. much, Dr. Alma Golden, pediatrician from Temple, Texas, and uh, who served in private practice, healthcare administration, national and international public policy, mother and grandmother, enjoying spending time and enjoy that time with your grandkids. It's a blessing to have that time with them. Well, coming up in just a little bit, Thy Strong Word. We'll study God's Word here. Uh, Pastor Whedon will will, uh, lead us in the study of God's Word today. I think it looks like Pastor Jolly John Lukowski is today's guest. Hope you can stick around for more great programming here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.